if you truly engage with people and you take their views and their questions seriously and you involve people in engagement right from the start of what you're doing, it has a truly transformative effect. Greetings, my good humans, and welcome to a special edition of Lefteris Ask Science. In edition number 28, we will not talk about a specific scientific topic. But this time, we will be taking a small lesson about how to talk and make sense of science. The use of these words are very, very intentional, since today I will be talking with Dr. Hamid Khan from Sense About Science, a charity based in the UK that promotes the public interest in sound science and evidence. I hope that by the end of this episode, you will have a better understanding on how to question things, what to ask for when it comes to scientific information, and lastly, how to debate people and hope for the best. As always though, the stereotypical podcasting things need to happen before we go on with the show. First, if you're listening to this podcast and you would like to be notified earlier about the guests and to get asked questions for the topics that they are studying, head over on Facebook and look for the Lefteris Ask Science Group. Additionally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, under the name Lefteris underscore asks, although I'm still figuring out TikTok. Also, in the show notes, you'll find links to subscribe to the weekly science newsletter and the ways you can support me in doing this by donating. Let's now meet Dr. Hamid Khan. My name's Hamid Khan. These days, I describe myself as a recovering academic because it's been three years since my last lab experiment. But now I'm the program manager for research, culture and quality at Sense About Science. Uh, Sense About Science is uh, an independent charity that champions the public interest in sound science and ensures evidence is recognized in public life and policymaking rather than advocating for understanding and loving science or for the funding of science. Instead, we work with decision makers, world leading researchers and community groups to raise the standard of evidence in public life. Wherever there is a socially or scientifically difficult issue, where evidence is neglected, uh, conflicted or misunderstood, that's where you'll find us. I started out my, uh, my career as a researcher, actually. Uh, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, spend a couple of, of years living and working with you uh, in Singapore um, uh, as part of ASTAR. Um, and I did a PhD in uh, chemistry. I was focusing on um, uh, synthesizing and characterizing uh, nanomaterials. Uh, so these really interesting things like graphene and molybdenum disulfide and uh, trying to check out all the, all the funky things that they could do. Um, and in the course of that, it really struck me that um, there were many ways to make an impact um, in science and, and with a scientific background. And uh, that was how I ended up where I am today. And now that you know the initial link between me and Dr. Khan, before we go into the specific questions about the importance of data, I want to know a bit more about the charity and have more information about Sense About Science. Sense About Science now is um, a relatively uh, old charity. We were founded in uh, 2002. Um, and there was a specific uh, context in which we were founded. Um, we were dealing at the time with um, lots of, of public misconceptions 
uh, about science uh, and about uh, evidence, not just scientific evidence, but other types of evidence too. For example, um, there was um, uh, the, uh, the the links, the alleged links between the MMR vaccine and autism, uh, the Andrew Wakefield case. Um, widespread misconceptions about what uh, vaccines could do. Um, also, misconceptions around uh, concepts of radiation and then harms from mobile phone masks. Can I get cancer from a mobile phone mask? And this was actually causing very serious problems because we were getting um, uh, questions from firefighters um, asking, is it safe for me to go on the roof of a burning building to save someone because I might get cancer from a mobile phone mask? And of course, this is where the public interest comes into it because. It's one thing to say, um, here is a misconception, let's challenge it. But actually, the more important issue is how is it affecting the public? Um, is this an issue that is having a major negative impact uh, somewhere in public life? And if it is, how can we address it? And do we address it by myth-busting or, to coin another phrase, firefighting? Or do we address it by uh, actually equipping people um, with the, the tools and the questions and the confidence um, to ask people in authority um, for that scientific evidence and to provide um, that evidence if you're a researcher or if you're in a position of power. The reason why I wanted to talk with Dr. Khan is both because of his experience and the knowledge that he had after working with Sense About Science when it comes to tackling misinformation. I was wondering if there is a strategy that always works best. What is the preferred way to see a transformation in someone? Giving them access to more data or straight up myth busting? I think accessibility of information is very important. Um, if you want people to be able to scrutinize data and you want people to ask the right questions about that data, it obviously needs to be uh, available. Transparency is really, really important. Um, and this is one of the things that we've been trying to, to say over the last few years, particularly as it relates to governments and policymaking. Um, there was a big uh, problem, uh, specifically in the UK, but I think in, in other parts of the world too, where um, the government, successive governments were not really explaining their chain of reasoning for a particular policy. What is the problem you're trying to solve? How does this intervention help to solve the problem? Why are you doing things a certain way rather than another way? And the result of that was that people couldn't understand or comprehend the logic for a particular policy intervention. Um, and so we've been running a, a long-running campaign uh, to, um, uh, to, to, to uh, make the government more transparent about its policies, to give an account of its chain of reasoning so that someone outside of government can, can access it and understand it. This is one aspect, uh, having, having availability of information and having access to that information. But the other thing is about um, harnessing people's innate skepticism, um, using the fact that people question uh, authority. Um, people sometimes go down the wrong line and start believing conspiracy theories. But even that comes from a place of skepticism. And so if you can harness that skepticism and you can ask, you can equip people with the right tools and the right questions so that they can make sense of, of, of scientific evidence for themselves, they can separate the real science and the real evidence from the garden shed stuff. That's where you start to see this transformative change. 
I wanted to latch on the term harnessing the people's innate skepticism. I always said to people who believe in conspiracy theories have their hearts in a good place. They come from a place of questioning and you should always question what you see. But harnessing that skepticism is more often easier said than done. And Dr. Khan did a good job in separating the terms science communication, public engagement and outreach. So there's a really interesting idea here about um, maybe it helps to take a step back um, and talk a little bit about our approach to public engagement here, um, because um, there are lots of terms out there um, that uh, researchers use that are not very well understood um, or not very well defined. And, and when we say that, we mean actually by researchers themselves. And one of those terms is, is public engagement. Um, so I want to make a distinction between um, public engagement, uh, outreach, um, and science communication. Uh, I think that's a good place to, to start. Um, all of those things are valid, but they all have different meanings. So when we talk about outreach, generally, this is activities that um, support the uptake of science. It's encouraging kids to take up science. It's um, uh, talking to, um, to families about um, why science is, is interesting and relevant in their lives. It might be things like a museum uh, exhibit, for example. Uh, and then there's um, science communication. And science communication really is a set of tools by which um, we communicate that scientific evidence. Um, and they can be quite creative. Um, they can involve a series of media and formats and a, a certain way of writing and speaking that is uh, engaging. Um, and then there's public engagement. And public engagement is distinct from both of those things, although there are obviously aspects of good science communication that form part of a public engagement strategy. Um, public engagement really importantly means having a, a conversation. It's a two-way dialogue between the researcher and the member of the public. Um, and that means trying to understand what legitimate concerns and questions uh, the public have about your field of research. Um, and that's really, really important because unless you do that, um, unless you put in the hard yards and put the effort in to trying to find out what people are saying, why they are saying it, where the misconceptions are arising, um, you've got no chance of, of ever being able to communicate science effectively with anyone because you're not answering the right question. And this is the thing that informs our approach. Um, and if you like, a way of defining a sense about science's approach against um, traditional public engagement approaches, we have this public-led, expert-fed approach to public engagement, where we actively seek out controversial public uh, conversations where um, the evidence has been neglected, the evidence has been misrepresented, or sometimes where it's missing altogether. Um, and we try to find out uh, what impact can our intervention have? How can we find out what where the conversation has gone wrong and how can we fix it? And when you start to do that, you see that actually it's, it's much easier to, as we said, harness people's um, propensity to ask questions, harness people's skepticism, um, and to really engage them in the way that, that uh, legitimately advances the conversation, rather than uh, talking at someone, rather than answering a question that you think they have. Um, this is a much more effective and, and transformative way of doing it. 
Dr. Khan and Sense About Science are in the unique position to be in the middle of discussions between the publics. And I say publics because, as Dr. Khan will soon explain, there are different ways the discussion needs to happen. So it's interesting when we talk about the public. Um, actually, maybe a better way of, of, of talking about it is the publics. Um, there can be many different types of public. One is, you know, uh, people in your in your life, uh, your friends and family. It might be people in your community, um, but it might also be um, uh, politicians and policymakers, civil servants. It might be people who work in charities and lobby for certain, uh, advocate for certain policies. Uh, it might be journalists. Um, so actually, when we talk about public engagement, and I appreciate this may be different for other organizations, but certainly when we talk about public engagement, we talk about all of those different groups um, and and how can we involve all of them as stakeholders in the conversation that we want to have. Um, but regardless of who it is that you're talking to, sometimes it might be that um, a particular piece of research doesn't have um, groundbreaking policy implications. And so you might not think it's important to talk to policymakers other times it will be really important to talk to policymakers. But either way, the, the key point that we emphasize and the reason why our public engagement approach is so effective uh, is because we involve people and we involve them early. We don't treat uh, members of the public, whoever they might be, as an afterthought. Um, too often, researchers will publish a great piece of uh, research. They will publish a paper in you know, Nature or Science Journal um, and then they will think, right, how can I go out there and tell everyone about how amazing this is? But that's the wrong way around. What we encourage, and part of my role as the program manager for research, culture, and quality, is to encourage those cultural changes in the way that researchers see their responsibility, which is to, to try to embed public engagement at the start of what they do um, and to really make sure that um, they are thinking about public engagement all the way through their research, right from the very earliest stages. Um, and we, when you do that, what it means is it gives you a chance to involve people right from the start of your research, uh, involve the people that you think might be interested in having a discussion about this research um, and what they might to, uh, want to say and what they might want to know um, and what you think you need to tell them. If you do that, uh, if you do that, you end up with a research output that is also coupled with uh, a really great public engagement output that can be truly transformative of the public, of the public conversation in a way that uh, rarely happens, actually. And the reason it doesn't happen is because researchers lose heart. They lose heart because they, they try and do it the, the other way around, the wrong way around, rather than getting people involved as early as possible. Many of the researchers I had approached to be part of the podcast have sometimes declined the offer, saying that their paper has not been published yet, so they are afraid to share confidential information. While that is very understandable, there could always be ways that the discussion can still happen respecting the confidentiality issues, because not discussing things can have negative results. I think uh, confidentiality issues um, sometimes can be used as a bit of a, a smokescreen, um, particularly when it comes to um, uh, controversial topics. Um, people think that if your research is on a, a, a controversial topic, let's say nuclear power, um, people then can get very defensive and protective. Uh, 
And what you find happens then is that the conversation goes even more wrong than it was before because people think you have something to hide. Um, and, and so these things, when they are built into... Uh, when they are built into research, when they are built into a grant application, they can be done in a way that safeguards, for example, intellectual property um, and the confidentiality of your research um, without neglecting the public conversation. Um, I think openness and honesty is always key. Um, and um, we should be very careful to make sure that um, wherever it's reasonably possible, um, we can work out ways to involve the public in the conversation that we're having. Having the public engagement aspect of research from the start of the project and not as an afterthought is quote-unquote the dream and the ultimate goal of science communication. But other than that, what other changes do scientists need to make in order to make science more open and more accessible? You know, one of the things we found uh, really early on, back in the early 2000s, um, was, and I, I say we, I should stress that I wasn't involved uh, in those early stages, um, as you probably gathered. But um, uh, organizationally, I say we. Um, and what we found is that when those really controversial discussions were happening about the links between MMR and autism, about mobile phone masks and cancer, about um, you know the effects of, of genetically modified crops, um, the researchers that were doing that research, the scientists themselves, we're not speaking out about it. Um, and so we, we thought, true to form, we should ask them some questions and find out why. What's actually going on here? What's the problem that is stopping scientists from speaking out? And what we found is that there was a confidence issue. They uh, told us that they lacked the confidence to speak out. They told us they lacked the skills to speak out. And um, maybe even more importantly than that, from a sort of cultural perspective, they didn't feel that they had the safety in numbers. They thought that if they spoke out and got attacked in the media or wherever, that nobody was going to back them up. Um, and so this is why we decided as one of our very first things um, to set up the Voice of Young Science Network. And the Voice of Young Science Network is a network, an international network actually, of, of early career researchers, that is PhD students and postdocs and, and of course, um, uh, trainee clinical professionals as well, um, mostly in the UK and EU, but increasingly in uh, America and other parts of the world as well. Um, and what that network does is that um, it, regardless of, of the background of the researchers, whether they are STEM or social science or, or medical practice, um, all of them have come together because they, they are committed to a shared ethos. And this is a shared ethos of taking responsibility for the public discussion of science and evidence, taking responsibility for leading and shaping that public discussion and for backing each other up and supporting each other to have that conversation as well. So what we want to do with Voice is to, um, to basically create and, and inspire a new generation of researchers to, be, uh, to feel that they have the confidence and the skills, to feel that they are motivated um, to get their voices heard um, in the middle of these really, really big conversations that are happening about the way that science and evidence is used and discussed in society, um, and really to support each other in making an impact. So if I could sum up what we want researchers to do, I think it is to take responsibility for that conversation and to be open and honest 
um, in their dealings with uh, the publics, as we said. Doing research sometimes can be quite isolating, especially when you're researching a topic that might have social implications. Many times you might feel powerless to change the public perception. Organizations like Sense About Science aim to create communities that will help you voice your opinion and enact change. Within this international network, there are um, activities that that we lead um, at Sense About Science uh, in order to get researchers involved. Um, And we also back them and support them in their campaigns. Um, And these can be campaigns to... um, uh, to, to challenge a public misconception um, in, in, in some way, so, or to, uh, to fix a policy problem that is affecting the public interest. The public interest is always at the heart of this. Um, what do we mean when we talk about the public interest? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging concept to understand. Um, it's quite well known in America, the idea of, of public interest being what's good for society. Um, when we talk about public interest, we don't mean uh, people who watch the Discovery Channel or people who like David Attenborough. Those would be people who are interested in science. But actually, the public interest is much, much bigger than that. And it has this idea of a social good embedded into it. So that's ultimately what we want uh, researchers to think about in, in what they do. So they will often run campaigns or we will run campaigns with them um, to... Um, to advance the public interest. And one of the things that we did back in 2009, which really stands out as a, as a, a big, big win for, for the Voice of Young Science, um, was a campaign involving the World Health Organization. Um, what we found um, is that there was no clear guidelines from the World Health Organization about the use of homeopathy to treat um, serious diseases in the developing world. These were things like uh, malaria, HIV, AIDS, um, diarrhea, tuberculosis. Um, and medical practitioners in um, developing parts of the world were finding a real challenge um, in, in fighting back against uh, the public harm that was being caused um, by uh, people sort of substituting, I guess, homeopathy for the medical treatment. So what we did was that we challenged the World Health Organization on this. A group of voice members internationally um, worked with charities um, and doctors uh, in Africa uh, and South America to write um, to the World Health Organization and make the case to them that uh, they should come out and clarify their policy against the use of homeopathy to treat these diseases. Um, And they responded they responded and they came out and they issued a statement uh, which was widely reported around the world um, where they, um, they condemned the use of homeopathy uh, for the treatment of these serious diseases. Um, and what they did was they gave medical professionals around the world the backing that they needed uh, in order to make the case to uh, governments and, and local health ministers um, about what the correct medical practice should be that would improve the public interest, that would maximise the public interest and make sure that people were not being harmed by misconceptions and misunderstandings about what homeopathy could do. Um, And this was a huge, huge win for us and something that we're very proud of. It's one of many campaigns that we've run. 
As a person with a science podcast, people have asked me sometimes to make an episode discussing COVID or even debunking some COVID-19 conspiracies. I didn't want to do that for different reasons. Firstly, I believe that there are other people who have done this work before me and have done a great job doing so. But also, especially when, when we're talking about debunking, I'm not sure for who would that episode be. The possibility of having a person that believes in conspiracy theories change your mind because of a podcast is very small, and that's because they will feel that their point of view isn't heard. I wanted to hear from Dr. Khan what is his point of view when it comes to conspiracy and discussions around them. What we have found, so this is maybe a good point to mention the, uh, the guide that we recently published uh, on talking about COVID conspiracy. Um, and it is a public guide that we developed uh, in collaboration with um, researchers from the University of Manchester, um, psychology researchers on um, what motivates people to engage with conspiracy theories um, and how can researchers um, push back against it. Um, and one of the things that we found uh, in that guide is, is actually it was a great example of our public engagement approach in action. It was our public-led expert-fed approach where we worked with um, members of the public, with community groups, with organizations around the UK um, to find out um, how to have a, a constructive conversation um, about conspiracy theories. And to do that, we had to find out what someone actually believes. Um, because uh, often what happens is that... Um, people can throw out statements that they've heard on the internet and and they don't really believe it necessarily. But what they do think is that it is provocative and it's interesting and it, 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 uh, it sort of impresses on them a different view that they had never heard before. And that's the thing that makes conspiracy theories interesting. That's how they can take hold. And I think understanding that is very important. Um, we should never approach people who hold um, conspiracy theories as though they are nutcases and that there is no way of, of having a reasonable conversation with them. Actually, when you find out what they actually believe, you find out that, um, again, there are questions that they're not sure about. There are things that don't quite add up for them. And what they're doing is they are scrutinizing something that they've seen. And so the challenge for the researcher really is to support that conversation as much as possible um, and to ask the right questions and to use the right approach to say, ah, so this thing that you've seen in the, on the internet, is this something you've looked into? Sounds to me like you're not completely convinced by this video about anti-vax. What are your thoughts on other vaccines? Um, uh, and when you watch this video or when you listen to this person talking about a conspiracy theory, what questions come up for you, right? And this is a way of helping them, again, to, as I say, harness that skepticism and use it in the right way. Um, what we should never do is try to challenge a conspiracy theory by bombarding someone with, with uh, facts. Uh, well, surely you can't believe that because this is what it says in The Lancet and this is what it says in the study that I published last week. Um, actually, what that will do is it will lead to defensiveness. It will lead to them saying, well, okay, those are your facts, but these are my facts. And you never get anywhere with that sort of approach. So I think empathy and humility, again, are, are really, really important. And what you find is that um, coming back to that point I made earlier, that, that people who hold conspiratorial views 
um, are not nutcases. Actually, you have to separate the, the propagators of those conspiratorial views from the people who are listening to them and engaging with them. And if you can do that, you can tap into people's um, questioning propensity and you can get them to, to turn that questioning um, skepticism onto the people who are propagating conspiracy theories and say, right, what questions would you ask um, in order to evaluate whether someone is, is, is making sense or not, whether this thing that someone is saying has a basis in fact? And one of the really important questions that people ask all the time is, is it peer-reviewed? And um, this, uh, this really comes down to uh, a really important plank of, of Sense About Science's work in society, that one of the things we're trying to do is to, I guess, socialize the concept of peer review, to embed the concept of peer review in society, um, so that uh, researchers are always actively promoting and discussing the role of peer review in society. Um, and we're, we're sort of supporting the public to ask that question um, about whether or not something that is peer-reviewed. And when people ask that question, um, what it allows them to do is to separate out the stuff that has been peer-reviewed from the stuff that isn't, and quite often the stuff that is based on conspiracy theories is that very thing that hasn't been peer-reviewed. And so it allows us to sort of explore, again, this open and honest dialogue, this true form of public engagement with people um, that can allow us to, to really... Um, support uh, people to transform the way that they think. Of course, we live in 2021 and it's very easy to go to a search engine and get access to as much information as possible on a subject. And without knowing the nuances of research and if the papers are peer-reviewed, it's hard to scrutinize the data. I've had experience with my own father questioning the belief in COVID research because of some admittedly bad data that he found published. But I believe that as scientists, you shouldn't look down on people trying to look into things on the internet. They might have a genuine interest on concern to look into things. There are so many stories that people have from their own sort of engagements with members of their family and their friends where these sorts of awkward conversations come up. Um, but I think, uh, so there's two points I would make there. One is that, yes, it, 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 there is this publish or perish culture. Um, in research. And uh, one of the things that um, I, I do as part of my role is to really foster positive changes in research culture that would bring the conversation back to quality. How can we make sure, um, as a, in, in scholarly publishing in the wider research community, that the best research is being published um, in the best possible way? Um, and then there's this issue of uh, salami slicing of research comes up where you have a small piece of data that advances your research question by a small degree and you publish that because you need to get a paper out. These are questions that are active discussions in the research community um, and we often come back to them as part of the discussions that we have with, with Voice of Young Science members. Um, and they're not easy um, questions to solve, but what it does require and will require is a, is a concerted effort from not just publishers, but from the research community as a whole. And that includes um, funders, it includes governments, it includes researchers themselves and universities. Uh, everyone needs to buy into this. And there are examples of where that has happened before. For example, our All Trials campaign and where it can happen again. Um, and that's one of the things that I think we are, we are really campaigning for and I'm pushing for in, in, uh, in my role. 
Um, the other point I would make in response to, to your story about your, your dad um, is that actually it represents a very typical situation. Because what we found in all of the work that we've done over the years is that people go, uh, go through uh, what we call flashpoints. Um, points in their lives where suddenly they feel like they, they might never previously have thought of, of uh, the evidence on a particular issue before. But something has happened in their life. Maybe they've been diagnosed or someone they care about has been diagnosed with a serious illness. Um, or maybe, um, you know, one example we have is you're a, you're a surfer and you've been surfing in the sea and you notice that you're surrounded by plastic and rubbish everywhere and suddenly it starts getting you thinking about issues of sustainability and, and, and uh, how plastic waste impacts marine life. Or it might be that you, uh, you are the parent of a teenager and the teenager has started asking for um, nothing but meat in their diet because they're doing the paleo diet or, or whatever. And suddenly you're interested, oh, hang on, what, what is the paleo diet? What impact is this going to have on my kid's health? What do I need to know about this? So this is a flashpoint in someone's life where they really become engaged in that conversation about evidence. And it's not reasonable to expect all of the people to be interested in all of the science all of the time. But where researchers can take responsibility, as you've done, is in being available to engage with those conversations with people at the points where they are ready to have them. And, uh, and that's where you can have a real transformative impact, because you're often dealing with someone that, obviously, depending on the severity of what's happened, can be quite sort of um, troubled, can be quite distressed and upset about something. And by being open and honest in that, in that situation, you can build a rapport of trust um, where you can make sure that that person has access to high quality evidence uh, and information that they need in order to answer these legitimate questions that they're asking, um, and, uh, and 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 that can be really um, really transformative as a way of advancing the public conversation. It's um, it's really important, I think, to um, uh, to meet the public in their space. Um, to, to, to have the conversation in a way and in a place that it is confident, uh, comfortable for them to have that conversation. Because nobody builds a relationship with um, a research institute or a building. Um, it's, it's, not very, it's not sometimes very effective to say, uh, I am Lefteris from the National University of Singapore and I'd like to ask you some questions about science. Um, actually, if you say, um, I am... Lefteris, and um, I am a scientist, and I know that you've been um, struggling with this issue where your grandmother has been diagnosed with uh, with cancer, and I, you have these questions. Is there anything I can do to help you with these questions? And that immediately establishes a human relationship um, where you can have these conversations more constructively. One of the things that I heard often in debates is the quote, different versions of the truth. Especially when it comes to research, there is this thought that two different sets of data can be equally valid. And inevitably, we started discussing about the term post-truth society, or the concept of the disappearance of a shared objective standards for truth. A few years ago, um, you know, around the time when, you know, Donald Trump was elected US president, for example, um, and obviously the, the Brexit campaign was very controversial. Um, people started to, uh, th there was a sort of uh, crisis of confidence in the, uh, 
in, in shall we say, the evidence community, where they started to believe that um, we were living in a post-truth society where people were um, easily swayed and content with sound bites and fake news and slogans, um, and that they had no interest in, in finding out or dealing with, with the evidence on, on a certain issue. Um, but uh, we, we've consistently found, um, through some of the work that we've done on public engagement, that that simply isn't true. Um, like I've said, throughout this conversation, people have really interesting and well-informed questions that they want to ask. And what happens when, when researchers and policymakers uh, and indeed journalists start to propagate this idea of a post-truth society, what it does is it shuts the public out of the conversation. It means that these, these conversations about science and evidence are had only in cliques, um, cliques of researchers and politicians and journalists where they figure out between themselves, um, you know, what should this uh, uh, evidence be used for? What policy should we make here? Um, how do we report this? And the public all the while are sort of standing outside the, the window, tapping on the glass, thinking, wait, I have these questions that you're not, you're not asking. You're excluding me from the conversation. And that's very dangerous because this is where you then start to get um, the, the, the idea of a post-truth society becomes self-fulfilling um, because the, the public and the, the researchers then start to move further and further away from each other in terms of where they are on a particular public conversation. Um, and so I want, um, I want people who are listening to this podcast to really take heart in the fact that if you truly engage with people and you take their views and their questions seriously and you involve people in engagement right from the start of what you're doing, it has a truly transformative effect. And it really smashes the idea of this uh, post-truth society. It really shows that people have... Um, legitimate questions, which uh, usually come from a position where uh, they have to find out a piece of evidence really, really fast about an issue that affects them really, really seriously. Um, and, uh, and you need to be there to make sure that you're ready to have that conversation with them so that we don't fall into this trap of, of thinking that we live in a post-truth society. Um, there was some research on this uh, a few years ago um, conducted by the polling organization Ipsos Mori um, in conjunction with a researcher called Bobby Duffy at King's College London, um, where they looked at society's attitudes towards the media, towards the government, towards scientists and doctors and all the people that were in relative positions of power. And they found that attitudes hadn't changed at all in any significant sense in the last 30 or 40 years. People still uh, ranked... Um, uh, science journalists as being trustworthy. They still ranked uh, doctors and researchers as being trustworthy. Even attitudes in, in people's uh, faith in, in, in uh, government ministers hadn't changed very much. Now, you might argue that that was starting from a very low base uh, yeah. <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, but uh, it hasn't suddenly gone undergone this sort of cultural shift towards um, cynicism and derision and disbelief, um, that faith is still there. And what we found actually is that arguably it's not so much a post-truth society, but if anything, it is a post-leadership society. What we don't want is for people in positions of power to forget about their leadership responsibility 
um, not to not for researchers not to forget that they have a responsibility to the public to be able to lead and shape that that conversation about how science and evidence is used in society for for um, the people that lead our countries, our prime ministers and our politicians uh, and presidents, not to forget that they have a responsibility um, to be um, to be open and honest and transparent about their policies and to make sure that they are scrutinising evidence in the way that the public expects. Um, these are the serious conversations that have that have always been a priority for the public uh, and still are. So what we want is for researchers and journalists and um, politicians, uh, policymakers in general, uh, to take responsibility for those conversations. Discussing with Dr. Khan, I also had much better understanding of the mistakes I've made as a scientist and as a communicator when it comes to dealing with people believing in conspiracies or when it comes to people having questions about science and research. Empathy is key, and when it comes to transformative experiences and being open about your knowledge to people. Because science and research are not perfect, and sometimes things need to change and include more people. One example of change that has happened in the last decade or so has to do with clinical trials. Dr. Khan told me that 50% of all clinical trials had not reported their results. If this sounds scary, it's because it is. When researchers uh, and funders and, and policymakers are not transparent about their research, it has very, very serious public uh, consequences. Um, and all trials is a really good example of that. So that figure you cited of 50% is an estimate uh, of the, the amount of research, that uh, amount of clinical trials data that has never been published. Um, and the reason it's an estimate is because it's, it's never been published. You can't put a figure on a negative. Um, so if you try and, and tally up uh, all the various bits of information that exist in, in the world in different formats and different uh, media, then 50% is the, is the figure that you arrive at for the amount of clinical trials that have never published reports. Now, that was back in 2013. Um, and uh, so this was when we launched the All Trials campaign, which was a campaign that we're running uh, internationally uh, in conjunction with um, Ben Goldacre from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine uh, at the University of Oxford. Um, and the idea of All Trials is to get all clinical trials registered and reported within 12 months of their conclusion. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples of why this matters. Um, back in the 80s, um, <clears throat> there was a, a heart drug um, called lorcanide. Um, and the, the trials data on this heart drug showed that um, a statistically significant proportion of the people who were prescribed this drug in the trial died compared to the placebo group. But this data was never released. The, the trial was conducted in, I think, 1982 or 83. And for 10 years, um, doctors kept prescribing lorcanide for, for treating this heart condition, um, completely unaware um, that actually it was causing more harm than good. And uh, statistics later showed that uh, potentially up to 100,000 heart patients had died um, as a result of being prescribed this heart drug uh, needlessly because that data on, on the fact that it was harmful was just not out there. 
Um, another example, which which I'm, some of your listeners I'm sure will remember, is Tamiflu. Um, and about uh, eleven years ago, there was um, what we used to to call a pandemic, but probably by by modern standards would not be described as a pandemic of, of swine flu. Um, and uh, and in the UK, the regulators. Um, advised the government to to stockpile a drug known as Tamiflu, um, which they concluded was um, effective in treating swine flu. Um, what they didn't know, because the manufacturer had never released the data, was that they were basing their decision on a very small subset of the clinical trials data that was out there on uh, Tamiflu. Um, and actually, campaigners from the Cochrane Collaboration fought for many, many years to get the full clinical trials data released. And when they did a systematic review of uh, the clinical trials, they found that Tamiflu was not really much better than a placebo at, uh, at treating swine flu. Uh, and so what the government did was, uh, this is the British government, they wasted about half a billion pounds on um, placebo pills, what were essentially in practice placebo pills. Um, so... This is a, a, an example of what happens when um, that transparency and that openness and honesty isn't there. People die because decision makers don't have the information that they need. Doctors don't have the information that they need in order to make an informed decision about their patient's treatment. Um, and then policymakers and governments waste resources either buying up drugs that don't work or reconducting clinical trials that have already been done because the, the results to show that they don't work are not out there. Um, so this is a, it, it sort of makes a really important point about transparency, is that it's not just a, a thing that's, uh, that's a slogan and is nice to do in, in happy times. Actually, when things get serious, and when you're dealing with a, uh, a serious global uh, disease, a pandemic, um, transparency is absolutely crucial, and it is absolutely essential to making sure that society can make the right decisions about how to tackle it. Um, and so this is what All Trials does. It, um, it uh, is a campaign internationally to force um, anyone that's involved in a clinical trial, whether that be a pharmaceutical company, a university, a funder, a government, a regulator, to, um, to register and report that clinical trial. So we have had some successes uh, in 2014, um, the EU uh, published its uh, clinical trials regulation, which came into force in 2019. And that uh, uh, regulation mandates um, an EU-wide uh, database, an EU-wide portal for registering and reporting clinical trials. Um, anyone that uh, is running a, a clinical trial is, is required to register on that portal. And that means that um, there is a record of the fact that this trial has started. And that means even if you get negative results that show this drug that you're testing doesn't work, um, there is still a requirement to publish that after 12 months. And we also uh, managed to get some buy-in from the, from the British government as well, so that after Brexit, the same system was implemented in the UK in regards to, to, to clinical trials that are being run by, by British companies or, or in the UK. And I'm pleased to report that actually when you, when you challenge these things and when you try to do something about it, it does have an effect. Uh, clinical trials reporting in the UK among uh, British pharmaceutical companies has gone up to 90% um, 
since that register was brought in. There is still work to do. Um, there are other um, organizations um, in the UK and internationally which do lag behind, but progress is being made. Uh, and it's a really, really, I think, tangible example of um, how we can make an impact that is genuinely in the public interest. I wanted to close this episode with a call to action from Dr. Kant. What could we, as members of the public, do when we're faced with situations of discussing scientific topics with people that believe in conspiracies? My advice to, well, to to members of the public would be um, always ask yourself, um, how can I take my questions um, and make sure that those questions are equally applied to all of the sources that I'm coming across? Um, And I think if people have the right questions to ask, then, then that is the way to, um, to foster that sort of um, cultural change, I guess, in society. Um, so there is an element of self-reflection involved in that. Um, but I also think we should be careful not to, to place, uh, not to overemphasize um, the sort of burden on the public um, and also to, to always bring it back to um, what can positions who are in relatively, people in, in relatively more powerful positions do um, to to have those conversations better and to lead those conversations better. Um, and so I think for members of the public, a bit of healthy scepticism, um, but making sure that that scepticism is channeled uh, in the right way. Asking questions like, is it peer-reviewed? Um, what is the, uh, the status of evidence in this field? Um, these sorts of questions about the, the, the sort of the quality and the scrutiny of evidence can be really, really helpful for the public. Um, and for researchers, always that sense of, of uh, being an academic citizen, I guess, um, and seeing yourself not in a, in a silo, uh, in a lab, but actually as, a, um, as, a, as an academic citizen of society, that, that you have a stake in how this conversation goes and you have a stake in, in the decisions that are made in society about how science and evidence are used um, and to uh, therefore take it upon yourself um, to, to, to lead that conversation, to have an open and honest conversation, um, and to be uh, really clear about the risks, benefits, and trade-offs of the things that you're trying to say. Never step outside of your um, field of expertise, as I've said. Don't feel like you have to uh, contribute to something just for the sake of it, um, because uh, I think people can, people can smell that, you know, if they feel like you are... Um, I'm not going to use the B word, but uh, if you are saying something that is rubbish, uh, for want of a better word. Um, and so um, uh, I, think, I think that there's some really, really practical tips in there that people can, whether they are researchers or members of the public, can take away and, and apply in their own daily lives. And lastly, I'll let Dr. Khan talk about how you can contact him and how you can use the resources from Sense About Science to ask for evidence very welcome to, e- to email me uh, directly, uh, hamid at senseaboutscience.org, um, uh, no spaces, uh, and hamid is H-A-M-I-D, um, or they're also very welcome to, um, uh, to email questions to uh, our general inbox, uh, hello at senseaboutscience.org, and that way it will be transferred to the, the right person. We, we don't generally, uh, I should say that we don't generally answer uh, questions about uh, science per se. Um, you know, uh, 
it, it, it's, so, so we're not a sort of fact-checking or, or myth-busting organization as such. But uh, in some cases, we may be able to direct you to researchers who can answer that question. Um, I think um, there's a really good way to engage with um, uh, questions about evidence, and that is to visit our Ask for Evidence uh, website, uh, which is askforevidence.org. Um, and on there, uh, you'll see some case studies about members of the public who have um, asked questions about something that they care about. So it might be that surfer who has seen plastic on the beach. It might be that um, distressed person whose grandma has been diagnosed with cancer. It might be someone that has been sitting on a train and they've seen an advert uh, from a from a company selling glasses that makes a claim about how it can correct your, your vision. It can be anything. Um, and... Uh, on the Ask for Evidence website, um, those case studies talk about how people have gone about asking for evidence. Um, and you can, you can use that website to submit um, Ask for Evidence queries, um, and then you can track the, uh, the progress. You can submit evidence that uh, companies have sent to you um, uh, in answer to the question that you've sent them. Um, and you can you can get uh, tips and support from from researchers as well who can help you to make sense of that evidence. Um, and I think that Ask for Evidence um, campaign, which we've not really talked about very much, but actually is a really important example of how uh, public empowerment can make a difference. Um, where if members of the public ask the right questions, it in turn creates an expectation um, among those in in power that they will be asked those questions. Um, if if, if uh, decision makers in companies and in, in, in policy making in media are seeing that people um, are asking questions about science and evidence, that people are expecting science and evidence to be scrutinized properly and uh, are expecting that uh, the claims that are made in media, in policy, in research are properly backed up, then it creates an expectation that they will expect to be asked. Um, and so that is a really, really good way of um, making sure that we can raise standards of conversation in public life um, about how science and evidence are talked about and how they are used. Links for all the things that we discussed in the podcast will be on the description of the show for you to find. Thank you very, very much for staying until the end of this episode. And I'd like to thank Dr. Khan for his work and his time. If you're a fan of the show, you might have realized that the episodes are getting longer and longer, but I don't hear anybody complaining about it, so I don't think I'll change something. However, it is getting harder to find time to edit the longer episodes and at the same time evolve the content the way that I'd like it to evolve. So, I will be getting some time off to reboot the website, find people to work with, and try to make the podcast accessible to more people. In order to do that, I will undoubtedly need to create a proper budget for the podcast, which is something I've been putting off because, well, who likes doing budgets anyway? I will probably have to create a Patreon page or something like that, since I feel I will feel much better if people who actually listen to the show support it, rather than putting ads here and there. I will keep you notified about everything. And if you want to still hear updates from me in the next few weeks, join the Facebook group, Lefteris Ask Science, and find me on social media as Lefteris underscore asks. Until next time, take care, keep learning, and be kind.